Hello, and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin, our podcast content manager. I'm pleased to introduce today's host, Becca Kennedy. Becca is a partner at Isaacson Miller and has more than 15 years of experience recruiting leaders in higher education and nonprofit organizations. She specializes in functional leadership positions, including research administration, technology transfer and commercialization, compliance, privacy, finance, and academic administration. She particularly enjoys recruiting individuals into newly created positions. Her early work experience as a teacher and counselor and in administrative support strengthens her understanding of the field of higher education. Our first guest today and fellow Isaacson Miller colleague is Oren Griffin. Oren is a senior advisor at Isaacson Miller and has over 30 years of experience in the fields of higher education, law, and legal education. He specializes in the areas of employment law, civil procedure, alternative dispute resolution, and higher education, and has built a robust legal career representing educational institutions and nonprofit organizations. Griffin currently serves as Associate Dean and is a member of the faculty at the Mercer University School of Law in Macon, Georgia. Our second guest is Tanya Jackamack. Tanya is currently the Associate Vice President of the Office of Civil Rights and Title IX Education and Compliance at Michigan State University, a position she has held since January of this year. She has more than 20 years of experience in higher education and compliance work. Most recently, she was the Title IX and Section 504 Coordinator at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Before joining Wake Forest, she served in a similar capacity as the Title IX Coordinator and Executive Associate Director of the Office for Access and Equity at the University of Illinois in Chicago. In addition to her experience in higher education, she has a long history as an attorney, focusing on employment, defense, and civil law at several law firms in the Chicago area. We are thrilled to have you, Tanya and Norin, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Becca. Thank you, Rhett, and thank you, uh, Devin, also for helping us get this uh, going. Um, So, Tanya, my first question is for you. Um, I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through how you got into the work of Title IX and civil rights in higher ed and um, maybe start, start there. Thank you so much for having me. From a very young age, I knew that I had wanted to go to to law school and through my teenage years and into adulthood, my interest in civil rights and addressing the ways in which individuals and groups were treated based upon race, national origin, gender, and other characteristics became of increasingly importance to me. Growing up and living in Chicago, I saw and experienced firsthand the the difference in treatment. I actually chose DePaul University College of Law because of its social justice focus. While in law school and after graduation, I worked for law firms that represented plaintiffs in discrimination and harassment class action lawsuits. Believing that I could more swiftly affect change from within and wanting to practice in individual cases rather than class action lawsuits. I actually changed sides, so to speak, (laughs) working for law firms that provided counsel and defended employees and employers in discrimination and harassment claims. Then in 2008, I was presented with this amazing opportunity to work in the Office for Access and Equity at the University of Illinois at Chicago. 
entering the field of higher education was one of the best decisions I have ever made. There, I was able to, to utilize my litigation and legal counseling experience to address issues of discrimination, as well as issues involving Title IX and Section 504. I work for the Chancellor's Chief of Staff, who is also a mediator and expert in informal resolution. It was really an amazing experience. Uh, the, one of the, the significant learning curves for me uh, going into to higher ed was decision-making through committees. I had been so accustomed to decisions being made by a select few. Then in higher education, there's so much collaboration with many divergent voices at the table. I learned that a, a committee's final product and solution were often superior and implementation definitely more effective given buy-in from community members at the out, outset. That was truly eye-opening. Yeah, it's a very different world and experience, isn't it, being in higher ed? Uh, so this is a question for both of you, Oren and Tanya. You know these jobs, as, as you've seen, Tanya, and in coming into this, these jobs are becoming bigger and more complex. Uh, Title IX now often has Section 504 and Title VII work with it, as well as prevention, outreach, and education. So, Tanya, I'd love to hear a little bit from you about how the larger role has made the work more challenging and possibly rewarding. Uh, and then I'd love to hear from you, Oren, a bit about what you're seeing with your experiences out there. Well, not too long ago, a Title IX coordinator and ADA coordinator wore many other hats mm -hmm. with Title IX and the ADA Section 504 simply being a label. A human resources professional may also be a Title IX coordinator and have no communication with students even. And while those individuals did great work, their responsibilities took away from the work that was needed in the areas of Title IX and Section 504. And it really was a disservice to the university and its community members. I believe that the this shift is a very to to a larger role is a very positive shift. Uh, certainly, there are challenges in that there there are more areas of compliance and constituents may be very different. There may be um, conflicting opinions about and, and conflicting interests from different constituent groups. But with this shift that I believe is very positive, universities are able to hire people who have more specialized and extensive experience. Uh, centralization of these responsibilities allows for a streamlined, coordinated response to issues of civil rights, relationship violence, and sexual misconduct on university campuses. I think that it also creates a space for coordinated assessment of the campus climate and prevention efforts. And I think that that's really important. Great point. Oren, your, your thoughts? Well, I, um, I would echo uh, everything Tanya said. I think uh, we've seen a number of uh, changes and developments in the higher education community uh, that are uh, uh, impressive and at least leads to, I think, some real um, uh, I think, thoughtful consideration of how we got here. Uh, my background is uh, began at a, as an undergraduate at a historically black college. And so I initially, early on in my career, got used to seeing higher education leaders do more with less. And so 
what we've seen is, um, you know, and at least with that experience, what I saw is that uh, higher education is uh, a broad brush to serve a large uh, uh, swath of the community. And I think that uh, uh, a number of areas, uh, I think, reflect on how that is impacting uh, the work we see today. Certainly, uh, the JD, the law degree, um, is a generalist degree. But we see a growth in the uh, JD advantage. That is where the JD prepares folks for not just practicing law, but for other positions. And in higher education, we've seen growth in uh, areas like enterprise risk management, um, compliance work, uh, and student affairs has become a growing area. Um, it just this week, I think the Chronicle had a very impressive article about academic advising. And so, what you see is a growth in student affairs. You see growth in at least the relationship between uh, the study of law and uh, what that does for um, what that means for um, uh, at least universities trying to deal with compliance issues and trying to um, conduct themselves in a way where students um, don't have to uh, pursue their education in an environment where they uh, have to deal with um, sexual misconduct threats or either racial discrimination threats. And so uh, these areas, uh, I think, demonstrate that there has certainly been uh, growth and complexity uh, in higher education uh, as it relates to um, many of these areas, such as Title IX. Yeah, excellent points. Um, so you, I'm sure you both knew that this was coming, but I have to ask about, um, you know, sort of the implications of the new regs um, that have come out um, and that are sort of in in the process of being implemented, no doubt, um, at both of your institutions as we speak, um, you know, sort of the implications on on the field, on the work of equity and and civil rights. Um, Tanya, do you want to kind of get started, and then we can move to you, Oren? There are seven days, uh, so we're <laughs> on a seven day count uh, who's countdown. Counting? Who's counting? Right, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, over the, the past two decades of doing this work, I've seen so many shifts in, in legal landscapes, uh, laws being passed, laws being um, uh, changed. And those in this field, they, they must know how to, to pivot with those shifts and, and be able to work within new frameworks while continuing to, to maintain that work in academic environment that uh, strives for um, strives to respond to and prevent relationship violence and sexual misconduct. Change is a constant mm -hmm. in this area. Mm -hmm. I don't know if a um, different skill set is, is needed uh, per se with regard to, to this field. We just need to be creative with ensuring that we are addressing, addressing uh, all forms of sexual misconduct and relationship violence, even if those those behaviors don't fall within the narrow scope of the new Title IX regulations. Oren, your your thoughts? Well, certainly these uh, regulations have been um, uh, folks have been waiting for them for quite some time. There's been a tremendous, uh, uh, I think, effort by many in the field to contribute and comment, uh, and so they have been long awaited. I think uh, one of the things we know about the law is that it has uh, served the country well. Um, and um, 
I think it's very interesting, though, as we understand the role of the law in our society and making sure that we have a, a balanced approach uh, to fairness and make sure that due process is, is uh, adhered to. The law certainly does have limits, uh, and it'll be interesting to see as these uh, regulations take hold, um, uh, do we end up sort of going closer to having a more of a, an impersonal process with dealing with our students who may find themselves uh, in some very troubled waters because of decisions they made. Uh, but do we become more impersonal and legalistic or do we uh, are able to hold on to building those trust relationships uh, that are important for, uh, for faculty to have with students, for administrators to have with students, for counselors to have with students? Certainly there has been, I think, a lot of um, uh, pressure put on, um, uh, on institutions and a lot of criticism uh, in some corners. And so these regulations are seen as a way to sort of answer some of those those concerns about due process. But um, they they certainly have garnered a lot of attention in these new regulations. And I think even as we speak, there are still a number of pending legal actions to try to delay their implementation. And so we will see. Um, but I think um, the regulations have changed and uh, evolved over time. The law certainly has, but it's still a, in the hands of skilled, talented administrators on campus uh, to uh, hear the concerns of our students, to make sure that we're providing a, a, a place for them to pursue their educations and, uh, and for scholars and uh, to pursue their work in a way that uh, an environment that's safe and uh, an environment that respects persons regardless of their race, sex, and gender. Yeah, yeah, great, thank you. Um, you kind of started to go there, Oren, so maybe we'll start with you and then move to Tanya. I mean, with the new regulations and sort of this new or different approach that institutions will be asked to take, you know, are there greater implications for different types of institutions and, and how they'll respond? Um, I could see stresses and strains at maybe smaller uh, less resourced uh, institutions or um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that um, from from both of you. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to need a whole new skill set um, at our institutions, but certainly I think those who are responsible for these areas dealing with civil rights and compliance and Title IX compliance, I think they're going to have to have more in-depth skills uh, I think the regulations, if you read them, uh, I guess if you're able to read all 2,000 pages <laughs> or so, but I think they certainly do uh, put more pressure on the investigation process. Uh, I think the hearing process, obviously, is going to be uh, under more scrutiny. Um, and, um, and I think we know from um, what we see go on in the courts, uh, typically when you have litigation surrounding Title IX compliance, uh, the focus and the spotlight is on the institution and what did it do and did it act properly? And so I think what these regulations do is uh, certainly I think there's an effort to ensure that there is a due process uh, for all parties. But, uh, but I think what's going to happen is it's going to certainly put more pressure on the systems in place to comply with the law. And I think for uh, many institutions, there's going to be uh, probably uh, demand for more resources in this area, uh, and uh, that may mean more personnel, but that certainly is going to uh, be required to comply with the law. But there's going to be tough choices because for dollars we spend on administrative compliance, that may be dollars that uh, are not going to go to uh, 
uh, other um, uh, priorities for the institution. But um, I think this is where we are, and I do think this is going to be um, uh, one of the challenges going forward. And I think for institutions who um, um, are already very mindful of their budget uh, constraints, I think they are going to have to be innovative in a way to, to make sure that they comply with uh, with these uh, regulations, what they mandate. Tanya? One of the areas that I'm, I'm concerned about with some of the schools that may not be as resourced is with regard to the new Title IX regulations provision that individuals have a right to an advisor of their choice and during a hearing so that that advisor may cross-examine and, and challenge evidence at that live hearing. The, the regulations also state that if a party does not have an advisor of their choosing, that the school must provide one. And smaller schools are those that don't have as great of resources um, are going to, to be challenged with finding advisors, providing advisors who have the training that is needed to cross-examine in a way that is not courtroom style cross-examination, that it comes from uh, uh, one of compassion, one that is trauma-informed. And so I think that there will definitely be a challenge there. I also think that community colleges, for instance, don't, they just simply don't have the infrastructure uh, for the, the re new requirement for live hearings. They're, they may lack technology or even physical space to, to ensure that, that parties are not in the same room. So that's where I see some of the significant challenges facing other schools. schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think we can already see how it's looking, right, in terms of the, um, in terms of uh, recruitment moving forward too um, for these kinds of roles um, and the pressures being put on. So that's very helpful. Um, Tanya, can you share a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted the work that you and and your team um, are doing? Um, I imagine the 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 investigations are still happening. The um, the the you know complaints are still happening. You still have to do the education um, and and prevention work. So how is this impacting you? Well, I began leading my office at Michigan State University merely weeks before the pandemic yeah. struck, and we began to, to work remotely. So my relationship building and, and trust building uh, that's necessary to, to effectively do my job has been built via Zoom. Uh, it's not ideal, to say, say the least, but we are completely working remote. It, it has had very little effect on our actual day-to-day -day work. Our investigations are, are continuing. In, in many ways, they have um, taken less time because we are working uh, remotely. My team in the MSU community have been absolutely amazing. They, they care, they're resilient, and absolutely devoted to, to this work. The one area that that concerns me the most with regard to the pandemic is it did not it does not allow us to obtain broad feedback on our new RVSM, the Relationship Violence and Sexual Misconduct in Title IX policy. And this is especially true 
in terms of obtaining feedback from students. Mm -hmm. So that is one of my concerns. And what I have communicated to various student groups is that we will have a continuing dialogue throughout the year about the policy with an expectation that changes uh, may occur next next summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes good sense. And Oren, are you? What are you experiencing related to sort of? you know, some of your students or even some of the, the, the groups that you work with around Title IX um, regarding the pandemic? What's been your experience? Well, I certainly uh, hasn't, haven't uh, recognized any decline. Uh, okay. I think that uh, uh, I have been involved in um, several matters over the last four or five months that have uh, proceeded with, I think, the same um, uh, urgency as uh, prior to the pandemic. I think what has happened is the mode in which we're pursuing these. That is uh, uh, via Zoom, uh, web conferencing uh, of every sort. Um, but I also think that one of the interesting uh, developments um, is that we've seen that uh, students have not, um, I think, uh, had any problem, at least in my view, in transitioning to uh, social media to uh, express concerns, uh, to talk about uh, potential uh, problems that they see in the campus community. And I think it bodes very interesting going forward to see what's going to happen as students uh, resume education uh, online or in person uh, here in the fall. And so uh, certainly no decline, um, but we do see uh, that uh, institutions, uh, as they find that their students are communicating or sharing their concerns um, online via social media, it creates uh, practically another frontier Mm. for uh, academic administrators to monitor, uh, to try to get ahead of some of these things that threaten uh, the campus environment. And uh, that has been sort of one of the biggest, um, I think, takeaways for me over the last few months with the pandemic is that now there's a new area for us to sort of try to find out exactly what threats are posed to our campuses. Mm. Yeah, good point. Um, you know, obviously all of the the pandemic um, has been going on and life continues um, regardless. And one of the things that's also been really, um, you know, uh, amazing, I guess, uh, to watch in, in the country right now is, um, is this renewed call for racial justice, um, in the country and, um, particularly seeing it right among college and university campuses and, and students and faculty. Um, Tanya, how do you think this renewed call for, for racial justice, um, will, you know, it, how is it impacting your work, um, in, in, um, Title IX and civil rights, and how do you think it will in the in the long term? Well, I'm very fortunate to to be working for an institution and for a president who is fully invested in in tackling discrimination and harassment on campus. Uh, what I do hope is for other schools that that this will be a wake up call that those schools need to provide mechanisms for addressing issues of race discrimination systemic racism, discrimination against DACA students, harassment based upon national origin, uh, et cetera. Uh, We, um, 
currently at MSU have an entire team that that works to uh, address reports and, and respond to issues of, of discrimination and bias on campus. What the effect that it's going to, to have, I believe, is the, the greater awareness is going to lead to greater support by the community and will we'll hold us accountable more in terms of addressing areas of bias that may not fall under our anti-discrimination policy. Uh, we are in the Sixth Circuit, and there was a Sixth Circuit case that essentially prohibits us from having a bias response team. So it is my hope that that the calls, the renewed calls for racial justice will essentially uh, prompt us to, to be creative and how we respond to issues of bias on campus, notwithstanding the Sixth Circuit decision. Um, I also hope that these, these current calls are, are uh, going to bring these discussions to a, a larger audience and that others are becoming aware and reflecting upon their individual and group privileges, that they're working to deconstruct those privileges privileges and using this time to, to grow and to be part of, of real change. Great. Um, and uh, advice for other colleagues who might be sort of, um, maybe they're working in, in institutions that don't have that same level of awareness or support, um, you know, as, as they're tackling this, do you have any, any advice for them? First, I, I, want to reiterate that that whoever's working in this field always needs to they need to 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 deconstruct their own privileges uh, mm-hmm. regardless of of who they may be and in order to again effectively be part of of real change so that's that's my first piece of advice is that it starts with the the individual mm-hmm. and to to take these renewed calls for racial justice to administration to put together task forces that that are uh, multidisciplinary, faculty, staff, students, to come up with a creative way to respond to issues of bias on campus. Um, each campus is going to have a, a different approach, and so I think that having a multidisciplinary task force or, or working group will be essential to, to come up with a creative solution. Great. Yeah, thank you. Oren, how are how are you experiencing this on a campus and, and working with others in different organizations and different campuses? Well, I think uh, uh, certainly the the protests that we saw um, uh, over the summer uh, in reaction to uh, the police shootings, um, the um, George Floyd incident has um, certainly uh, been a wake-up call, and I, I think Tanya's right about that. I think this is uh, a real opportunity. Uh, um, but I think what it also has done is started a new conversation on our campuses that uh, I think administrators and I think those who are going to enter the field, uh, those who have committed to a career in this field, um, will need to, uh, to be very mindful of. Uh, I think the Title IX effort to ensure that um, uh, gender discrimination is uh, is eradicated uh, in our higher education systems or in the pursuit of education. 
I think in a lot of ways, the, what we've seen in the energy and the resources dedicated to uh, Title IX compliance perhaps might even be um, uh, helpful for uh, at least making renewed efforts to ensure that we don't have discrimination based on race. Um, and so uh, I have seen at least a, a different kind of conversation, uh, a conversation that crosses uh, racial lines, social economic lines, geographic lines. And I think as students, uh, many of them who were involved in those protests uh, this summer, as they return to campus, I think it'd be a mistake to think they're going to return to the classroom and quietly sit down uh, with asking tough questions. And uh, perhaps um, what we've done in such a robust way uh, to uh, deal with gender discrimination in Title IX, maybe some of that can be um, uh, a way forward to uh, ensure that uh, we deal with racial discrimination. And so uh, I think there's going to be uh, some really interesting questions, tough questions, and I think universities need to be prepared to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, Tanya, um, it's been really well documented, I think, that uh, there's a pretty high burnout rate um, in the field of, of Title IX coordinators. And, and, um, and you know, there have been articles in, in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and we hear about it at, at the professional conferences all the time. So um, I'd love to hear from you sort of how have you managed the stress and strain of the role um, and what kind of advice do you have for, you know, colleagues out there who, particularly folks who are maybe just new to, to the work, um, on how to manage some of that um, stress and strain and, and avoid burnout? This is a, a great question. The, the work is stressful and challenging, some days more challenging than, than others. But those challenges provide a lot of opportunities. What would so to to change that focus and, and to look at the the challenge? How are those challenges are opportunities to to affect change on campus, to support students, to support um, staff and and faculty? On on those particularly challenging days, I will re remember and remind myself the the change or the support that I've been able to, to provide to students, faculty and staff, especially students. Uh, sometimes I will refer back to, to emails I receive from students thanking me just to remind me about why I am doing this job and what, what um, drives me to continue to, to do this work. So I think that that's really important. And it's also really important to, to stay centered uh, in order to be available to my team and, and to others. And, and to do that, I do a lot of cycling and mm. meditation. Those two things have really helped me a lot. My, my staff knows that I may take a little longer of a lunch break so that I could go for a longer ride. Um, and then that I'll be available later in the evening. I always want to support the well-being of my staff as well, because if my staff becomes burnt out, that's also going to, to affect me. So not only do I want to support my own well-being, I want to support the well-being of my, my staff. Mm -hmm. um, 
I recommend that others find their their own ways to take a step back and to to take those breaks so that they can remain centered and, and sort of see the bigger picture and the reason why that they're doing this work. That's great. Great advice. Finding that thing that you can do to sort of decompress and, and put some space there. That's that's so important. Um well, I want to thank you both, uh, Oren and Tanya. This has been so wonderful to, to have you. I will now turn it back over to, to our colleague, Rhett. Yeah, thank you, um, all three of you, for that conversation. And thank you to the listener for tuning in. We would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch up on our old episodes, as well as be the first to hear new ones. And we'd also invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information or follow Isaacson Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk. Thank you.